Well, good afternoon, everybody, on that lovely that day. We've been missing the last couple of weeks, but it's good to see you uh, mostly smiling at me so far. But turn with me to Esther. Uh, grab the, the Bible that you brought with you or uh, in the Pew Bible there. We're actually going to read the next eight verses or so, uh, next eight verses of chapter eight uh, this morning as well. Uh, over the next two Sundays, we'll look at this too. But Esther chapter eight, let me read those eight verses as well. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told uh, how he was related to her. Uh, the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with any favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamathada, the Agatite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So we come to Esther chapter 7, and it is banquet number 7 in the book. And as Haman and the king arrived for the, the feast, neither of them knew the secret of teaching our children that Esther was a Jew. It's not until this chapter, chapter 7, that that's revealed to them. Previously, in the previous banquet, Haman, before attending the first feast, was a jovial mood, wasn't he? He was happy, he was gleeful, he was buoyant. He had been invited to dine with the king and queen. He was boasting to his family about how much he had and also his plans to execute Mordecai. But boy, chapter 6, can't a day change everything? It's all about a clock. The king is lying awake at night. The clock is ticking. The seconds are drifting into minutes, into hours, unable to sleep. Meanwhile, Esther in her chamber, she's pacing about, watching because she knows the clock is ticking for her to speak up very soon Mordecai he's sitting at the king's gate and the minutes are feeling like ours because he knows the time is coming and Haman well he was in the countdown to Mordecai's death but that's now all up in the air but as he led Mordecai through the city of Susa saying this is a man the king delights to honor I'm sure those moments felt like ages and then you have the workmen building the 75 foot wooden structure. They're counting the hours too because they're maybe hoping for a time and a half or double time. But here we have, finally, Esther's time has come in chapter 7. Haman, maybe not as buoyant as he was the first time, he's frustrated, distressed, and confused. But Esther, her time has come. She's been waiting a long time for this. She has carefully prepared. She has fasted. She has prayed. The Jews have been fasting and praying too. And they return for this banquet for the king. Remember, Esther has carefully chosen her strategy. 
And you can imagine her carefully rehearsing her lines, drafting, redrafting what she might say. She needs to make sure that what she says is carefully chosen. A misplaced word, the incorrect tone, could ruin it all. The words carefully chosen to make sure she's not pointing the finger directly at the king, but at Haman. Because she knows how the king works. He gets angry and he's gone. He got rid of his first queen because she wouldn't dance. So what would he do to the queen who accused him of trying to kill her or others? So they all sit down with their wine to eat and to drink. The king must be on his mind. What is Esther looking for? And the king asks again for the third time, what do you want? Every time he is shown he's going to be really generous to her. I'm going to give you up to half the kingdom. He's going to be generous to Esther. And Esther, yet again, with great courage, just as she did in chapter 5, whenever she approached the, the king in his throne room with the, the axe man behind the pillars there, she went and spoke to him. Now she must speak and intercede for all of the Jews. The time has come. In verses 3 and 4, we see her request, don't we? Verses 3 and 4, she reminds the king maybe that he chose her. She offers this explanation. You know, if, it, if they're only sold, I wouldn't have bothered. If we were only slaves, I wouldn't have spoken up. And there's an element of truth in that already for Esther, isn't there? Because wasn't she essentially a sex slave brought in? She's not going to speak up, but she's going to speak up when it's genocide. But Esther, as she speaks, she's no longer trying to blend in, is she? She says in verse 4, For I and my people, me, he's adding her name to the long list of Jewish names that are going to be executed on that day of the edict. She has sided with the Jews. There's no going back for her. It is, again, life or death for her. Because we look at the Esther's request. We know that Esther's request was carefully prepared, don't we? Carefully chosen, just as her strategy had been. The fasting, the planning, the prayer. The usual niceties, if I have found favor, you know, give me my life. But Esther doesn't point the, the finger at the king, does she? She easily could have reacted as the king would have reacted, or Haman might have reacted. But she recognizes there's a time to, to be quiet and a time to speak, time to think about what she's going to say in, in response. She is incredibly wise through Mordecai and a bit of help. And Esther is speaking thoughtfully. There's definitely something there for us, isn't there? Something for us. It is good to be prepared. We all go to our business meetings that we lead, prepared. We go to interview after interview, and we are prepared. We come here, us, and we are prepared. It is wise to be prepared, but it's also wise to be prepared if we have different conversation, conversation coming up, isn't it? Don't go ramstam and quick to speak, but be slow. Don't be quick to speak on, on social media or respond to that text message whenever it might need time. Don't be quick to speak when you follow your friends in school. Because being quick to speak can cause more problems than what it's worth. Don't just react and blow off your top like the king or human. Don't just react with no thought. It is good to be prepared, to be thoughtful when we're speaking to others. But back to our story. Esther, having been carefully prepared, she's delivered the first part of her line, and the king responds in verse 5. Uh, the, ki the king says, Who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? You know, who really wants to kill the most beautiful woman in all of the world? But here is Esther's moment. It's a Tyson Fury left hook. The, her punchline has come. 
that vile Haman. She doesn't miss the punch, does she? That adversary and enemy. It was easy to forget in those first couple of verses. This is not a meal for two, but a meal for three. Talk about being the awkward third wheel. <laughs> Haman, can you imagine? We love to see his face in those verses whenever he cottoned on what Esther, who Esther was, a Jew. <laughs> We're told he's absolutely terrified. He only thought he was having a bad day before he came to the banquet. But Esther's time has come and she doesn't misplace a word. The moment has come for Esther to land the punch and she lands it. And we read there that Haman is terrified. He knows for himself in that moment it is all over. He is doomed. Why? Well, because of Xerxes' rage. At the end of verse 6 and start of verse 7, the king got up in a rage. Esther had delivered her line perfectly. Oscar nominee right there. She's hit the nail on the head. She's not ignored the fact that she's a Jew and she's pointed the finger at Haman. And the king is a fuming. We've seen a lot of fuming, anger, rage throughout Esther. Esther won the king, burned with anger because Vashti wouldn't dance. Chapter 2, that anger disappears. Chapter 3, Haman's angry at Mordecai. And chapter 5, Haman's angry at Mordecai. And again, the king is in a rage. Seems to be us the thing that they do best, just being angry, grumpy men. But without saying it, Esther has implicated the king in it. And he must have felt a little bit guilty. Let's go into the garden as the king storms off into that, that cooler, that beautiful garden around the palace. The king is reflecting maybe in those moments that he needs a way to save his wife, but also his face at the same time. I wonder what's going through his questions. Who are Esther's people? Was he questioning if I'm guilty? Um, well, that's my right-hand man. He's a traitor. What are other people going to think about my judgment if I've employed a traitor as my right-hand man? His pride must have been deeply hurt and cut, torn to shreds. Probably more worried about himself seeming like a fool, uh, like a fool, his right-hand man trying to kill his queen. And then he'll discover that not only was he going to kill his queen, but the man who saved his life, the man he delights to honor in, is also under that sentence of death. But as the king storms off, bursts through the doors into the garden, Haman, what does he do? He stays behind to beg for his life. He throws himself at the queen. He knows he's a dead man. He's hoping that Esther in some way would relinquish what she said to, to forgive him or to get his life back. He doesn't leave. He throws himself on his knees, begging. And then it just so happens yet again that the king comes back into the room and he has his answer of what to do. We have the king's reason to execute. As Haman is throwing himself on the couch, the king re-enters the room he knows this is how he's going to get him. This will be his excuse. Because he needs a spin, doesn't he? He needs something to save his face. He needs a story to kill Haman. It fits that Haman is going to hit on or molest or rape the queen. Haman would have been a brave man to do so. That's not what's happening. But it works for the king. See, in Persian law, no male was to be left alone with the king's wife or his concubines alone. No man was allowed within seven steps of the queen. If the king left the presence of those, other males present must also leave 
those ladies along. As Haman falls before the queen, the same word that his wife used, that his downfall is coming, as he falls down at the queen, the king has an excuse. And as the words leave his, leave his mouth, uh, they know exactly what to do. His bodyguards are in the, the same wavelength. They cover his face, don't they, and lead him off. But I want us to recognize some of the, a lot of the irony here, isn't there? How did this all start? Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. And how does it all end? Haman bowing down before Esther. In that moment, Haman's begging for his life, but it's actually what's going to kill him. Haman, the, the proud one, is going to be brought low. And as the, the words leave the king's mouth, Haman has his face covered. Turn to chapter 6 and verse 12 if you're following along. Remember, Mordecai's been led through the streets. Obviously, incredibly embarrassing. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. The embarrassment and shame after leading Mordecai in the city caused him to put his hood up and make his way home. And here the guards cover his head, his face, in preparation of his execution. With his face covered and being executed in verse 10, we're told that the king's rage subsides. The king wanted rid of this man, for killing us, wanting to kill his wife. <laughs> you see the bodyguards just chip in there a little bit. You know, he's also looking to kill Mordecai. We could use what he's planning to do. That's the irony in it as well, that Haman's death is on his own pole, and he's built for someone else. The pole, the gallows, whatever, is already being built, so go and use those. Remember, Haman's the man. He wasn't really interested in riches. He's interested in recognition. He had this built it up, built for someone else to get his name elevated. He wanted recognition. He wanted to be lifted up above all for everyone to recognize him and see. And here he is, 75 foot up for all people to see. He will be recognized, but not in the way that he wants to be seen. So after the, the king's rage subsides, we go on into chapter 8 a little bit. Uh, last night, well, you see rules reversed in the first two verses of chapter 8, but, or, yeah, chapter 8. But last night was a huge boxing match. There was Deontay Wilder, who was the world champion, and Tyson Fury. Wilder holds the belts uh, for the, the, the belts for the weight division, and Tyson Fury was the challenger. And what happens in the fight is whoever wins gets the belts. So last night, Fury won. So the rules are reversed in the sense that if they fight again, Tyson Fury will be the world champion uh, 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 and Wilder will be the, the challenger. The rules are reversed. What was once Wilder's is now Fury's. And we see rules reversed here a little bit with Haman and Mordecai, don't we? These men who were opposed to each other in chapter 3, one humble, the other proud, from a human point of view, as we've read this story, <clears throat> there's only one winner. And it's not Mordecai, but yet God in his providence gives all what was once Haman's to Mordecai, namely his ring and his estate is given to Mordecai. First one, on that very day, on the same day, late in the evening, he gave Esther everything Haman had, all the land, the wealth that he had boasted about has been given to the Jew who he hated because Mordecai 
receives this gift from Esther. She puts him over the house of Haman. And then the king presents the, the ring to Mordecai. Remember, this isn't sorted out. The big issue is unresolved, isn't it? The edict is still in place. The law of the Persians cannot be revoked. Esther is given riches, Haman's riches. Mordecai is given the position of honor along with the ring. But this is not a story about the destruction of Haman and the elevation of Mordecai. But the salvation and rescue of the Jews is Esther's concern. Yes, Haman is dead, good. But as edict is alive, the Jews are still under threat. The Jews still need saving. I know some of you, quite a few of you like to watch The Apprentice when it's on. And a few years ago, whenever they were divided into their teams, they had to do a gardening challenge, whatever the business model, whatever they call it. And within the team, they split up into two to do gardening. And one was to clean patios and areas like that. And this team said they could do power washing. So they arrived in this patio bit and there was no top to do the power washing off or to fill their buckets with do the power washing. So what they decided to do was they get buckets of water and just slush them about and move the dirt around a little bit. Now, not a great job, really dirty and messy. Uh, they did a little bit of the job, like bits of it were clean, but it wasn't done at all. And Esther, said, her job's not done here, is it? And we see Esther's time has come again. Verses 3 to 6, her approach has been really careful really methodical and planned and thought through. But in verses 3 and 6, Esther pleads in a way she hasn't done before. Her approach is much different. Look, look at those verses with me. She approaches again the king without being summoned. She's able to touch the, the scepter, but Esther this time is falling at the king's feet. She is weeping. She is begging him to put an end to this evil plan and just drops in the name of Haman there again for good measure. Haman had literally hours before just thrown himself at Esther's feet and his concern was only himself. Esther throws herself at the feet of the king and she's only concerned about her people, the Jews. She couldn't settle knowing that her people were going to die. In verses 5 and 6, Esther is asking the, the king, you know, if, if, you, if I find favor in your eye, you know, if, it's almost if you really love me, if you really want to do the right thing, because the problem facing Esther and Mordecai is that the king can't revoke his edict because the voice of the king is never wrong. We all know people like that, don't they? People that are never wrong, well, that's the case of the king. Once it's sealed, that's it, it's law. The king was never wrong and could do no wrong. But after hearing Esther, the king responds again, but in verses 7 and 8, we see the king passes on responsibility again. The king passes on responsibility again. All goes back uh, to, to Haman. Remember, he spun a story, and the king was like, Aye, whatever you think. So we would like take two here. You almost have to do a double take. The king's response is maybe initially confused because Esther has what he perceived as what she wanted the Haman's wealth and the ring, and Mordecai elevated. Xerxes seems to be confused that Esther's concerned about others. So, in verse 8, he declares that another decree be written. Whatever you think, you go on ahead and sort it out and sign off on it. That's fine. He will literally sign off on two contradictory decrees. 
it will literally be Haman's edict or decree versus Mordecai's decree. Just whatever you think, the king's king, I've seen him to be spineless and pretty useless. He doesn't really care too much about anything. He's pretty useless. doesn't care about people. The next number of weeks we'll see the edicts playing out. What do we learn from these verses? Well, we've learned about Esther being careful with her words and we too can be planning and careful with her words. But we also need to see that judgment is certain. Ultimately, we, we reap what we sow. How does Haman reap what he sows? Well, Haman sowed anger and hatred towards Mordecai over and over again and he eventually reaps anger from the king. The punishment he receives fits his crime. The punishment is tailor-made. It's a little bit of poetic justice. Haman's work of plan, he's condemned to his own gallows. In Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 7, 8, we read these words. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. If we sow flesh, we reap corruption or destruction. The pleasure of sin leads us to corruption and destruction. But if we sow the Spirit, if we live for Jesus, we reap life everlasting. No deed that we do in the name of Jesus for his glory will be forgotten. Yes, it might seem the wicked prosper in this moment. Like Mordecai had been passed over, Haman was promoted and his evil schemes were passed. The Hamans of this world will be hung on their own gallows. Their time will come. And we've been recognizing that we are just like Haman. Yes, not as wicked, but we are in our hearts, selfish, proud. We live this life for ourselves. It's really easy to deceive ourselves about the reality of God's judgment. Easy to think that it will not come to this world. Don't be deceived. We all sin, and it is certain judgment coming towards us. Because as Haman dies, one of the last faces he saw was an angry king. And he will meet another angry king because of his sin. It's easy to, to see around us and exclude ourselves from the reality of God's judgment, but it will come. We reap what we sow. And then finally, this afternoon, the king's wrath subsides. In verse 10 of chapter 7, Xerxes' rage subsides when Haman is put to death. That word is also used in Genesis 8. Okay? Whenever the, after the flood, Genesis 8, when God remembered Noah, the waters subsided. And why did God send the flood? Well, it was, to, it was judgment on the people, wasn't it? So whenever the, the waters receded, it was God's judgment receding. Okay? So th this is, the, the Xerxes' rage subsides whenever justice has been served in his eyes. But we cannot satisfy God's wrath towards us. We deserve it. We reap what we sow. We deserve that punishment. But have a look at, at these verses in First Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Haman has been put up. I don't know what your Bible translation says. Gallows, pole, but Hebrews literally tree or wooden structure. Where is Christ put up onto? A tree, a wooden structure. 
Jesus' death provides for those who trust in Jesus to be declared not guilty. Christ takes the punishment that we deserve, and God accepts it. God accepts the perfection of Christ for our brokenness, our corruption, and our destruction. See, the decree of death looms over us. It cannot be revoked on us. Death, life without God, everlasting is the penalty of our sin. That decree stands on each of us, and it cannot be revoked. Just like Haman, we stand in the death penalty. We need someone to take that punishment for us. What hope is there for us except that only Christ can override the death decree because he gives himself on a tree. Haman's death comes on a polar tree that satisfies the king's wrath. Jesus, the perfect one, the Christ, dies on a tree and takes God's wrath. Only Christ can satisfy that wrath for us, uh, in our, uh, for us so that we don't have to receive God's wrath. We praise God for Jesus because he's the only one who can satisfy our God. King Xerxes, he passes on responsibility to others. He doesn't seem to care much about people. God, on the other hand, does not pass on his authority. In fact, he takes responsibility and offers us a hope and a chance in his son Jesus. And he cares for his people so much that Christ would even die for us. We need to throw ourselves down at the feet of the king. For only Christ can override the death decree by dying on the tree for you. For you and for me, Christ does it for us so we don't have to face the Father's wrath. 